This uh, scripture reading today is from Luke 14, 25 through 33. So we're going to, you can use the Pew Bible. No one else will be using these. And it's found on page 874. Now, great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough money to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able to, with 10,000 men, meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Holly. Well, it is so good to see each one of you this morning. And uh, at one level, this feels just, you know, muscle memory, old hat. Uh, completely normal. And at another level, this is such a huge moment and feels uh, so different. And so I'm just grateful for each of you being here this morning, uh, for signing up, for especially for those of you who are willing to, to volunteer and who got here early to help us and do all that in this moment. Uh, we're just so grateful. And so thank you for being with us through this season. I was adding it up this morning. It has been 17 weeks uh, since we've been together on a Sunday, 17 weeks of online gatherings. And I, I never would have thought at the beginning of this, uh, I found in this uh, podium an old notebook that had the community life, um, these are communion elements for later, so we'll, we'll put that back up here, uh, that had like, it was the last one we were together, it was March 8th. And uh, it was just wild that, we, it, that this has gone on. Uh, for this long, certainly longer than I think any of us anticipated at the beginning, but it's so good to be back together. And just as a reminder, you know, church has not been closed, our building has been closed, our services in person have been suspended, but we as the people of God have continued to be on mission together. And um, we, yeah, these pews have not uh, been filled, but that does not mean the church has not been alive and well and functioning. But place and presence matter a lot. Place and presence matter a lot, and so it's really good to be back in this place with you and present with you in this moment, and so uh, we're really glad uh, for that. So um, as we begin here, um, let's give thanks for that. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into our message for this morning. So Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have brought us together. We do uh, pray for those who are a part of uh, the Brookside Campus church family who are not here this morning, whether because they just didn't uh, get a spot or because they are not yet uh, able to come back and be safe with us, that we are united with them in spirit even now, as you have united us each and every week across time and space uh, in your body, in this unitedness to Christ that we share. But we also ask that as we open your word that you would speak afresh to us through your spirit as you do each and every week. Um, but we ask you to do that now in this moment. Would we hear from you? In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, did you know that a couple of years ago, as a church, we almost bought a mansion? We almost bought a mansion. Um, and don't worry, it was not as a parsonage for any of our pastors, so don't, don't get worried there. But it, we were actually looking at it as a possibility of being a church building for our Shawnee campus. That's how big this place is. It has 19-foot ceilings uh, on the main level, 14-foot ceilings in the basement. It has a movie theater, a seven-car garage, 12 bathrooms, 11 acres, his and her master uh, bathrooms. It's just an incredible place. And I think there are probably closets in this house that are bigger than my entire house. Uh, and actually, if you're interested, it is still for sale. It's uh, actually about 60% off right now. It's uh, down to $2 million from $5 million. So uh, it's a great deal right now. Um, but why? Why is it so cheap right now? Because it was never finished. The people building it spent millions of dollars, but then they maybe had to stop about 80% of the way through the project. And actually, I don't know, we don't know the whole story of why that is. Um, and it, at one level, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. This isn't about shaming those people for not finishing their project. But it's almost a little bit haunting to look at the pictures. You know, some of our staff actually toured through this because we, we thought about it. Is this a ch- site for our Olathe campus, or our Shawnee campus? And it just, there's almost a sense of it being a bit haunted by sadness and pain and loss at what could have been but it was never finished. And you know, Jesus says this is the greatest threat to following him. To look at that unfinished, that unwanted, that unhappy mansion, starting but not finishing. The greatest threat to following Jesus, I think often we tend to think is, okay, well, the greatest threat to following Jesus is it's my my lust or my pride or my greed or my angry or or my gossip or those kinds of things are going to what? keep us, keep me from following Jesus. But you know, those are all things that Jesus can and has and will forgive. But only if you give your whole self to him and all that you have, only if you first make him number one in your life and everything else second. This means that the greatest threat to following Jesus is not counting the cost of what it means to step into relationship with him, of thinking that it's cheap, of thinking that it's easy, of underestimating what it will cost you, of thinking, you know what, I'm never going to have to choose between Jesus and other good things, that I'm never going to be in a position to have to choose between Jesus and other good things. And so here's our, our driving question for this morning. What's this? Can you afford to follow Jesus? Can you afford to follow Jesus? That's the the metaphor that Jesus introduces us to in this chapter of this, this, you've counted the cost. And at one level we say, well, of course I can afford it, right? Isn't following Jesus free? Isn't it a free gift? Right, yes. In one sense, it is free in the sense that you cannot earn it. But it will cost you everything. It is free in the sense that you cannot earn it but it will cost you everything. So let's look at Luke chapter 14. And if you have a Bible or you want to pull it up on your phone, I invite you to turn there and look at it. We're going to start in verse 25 and kind of go through verse 33 this morning. And in this little section, Jesus sort of tells two short mini 
parables. So we've been in this series in the parables, and these were a method of Jesus teaching his followers, teaching the people to engage his ears and listening and engage their imaginations, helping them to understand who he is and also to help make sense of what he is doing. You know, they're not first and foremost sort of just illustrations or even stories to give us kind of systematic theological truth. They're stories that help us understand Jesus and his mission. And we're focusing on them in this portion of our study in the Gospel of Luke, which is also more broadly just a theological biography of Jesus. That's what the Gospels are. They're theological biographies of Jesus that are helping us understand who he is, why he came, and what he's done. So Luke is seeking to give us a portrait of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and he's trying, Luke is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to convince us that following Jesus is worth it. That it's worth the cost. That he is the one who gives us life. And here's the thing, though. Jesus does not hide the cost of following him sort of in the fine print of the contract. No, he puts it right there up front. And here in Luke 14, he's working his way toward Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he's going to be executed on a Roman cross. But at this point, no one can imagine that happening. They only see him as a great teacher, maybe even the king who is finally going to overthrow Rome and be the the one who brings victory to God's people, who rescues them from the oppression of the empire that is ruling over their country. Either way, there are massive crowds of people who are following Jesus and he turns to them. They're kind of, you can imagine, Jesus is walking down the road. There's a big crowds of people kind of all around and following. And he turns around and he says to them, do you know, do you know what you're getting yourself into? Have you counted the cost of following me? Can you afford it? Can you afford to follow me? This is what he says in verses 25 through 27. Now the great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his own cross cannot come after me and be my disciple. Now, these are one of those sayings of Jesus that shock us as followers, as people may be considering following Jesus. I mean, this is a harsh, this is a hard saying from Jesus. And it should shock us, right? Because at one level, we, we want to look at this text and say, can this even be right? Hate my family, hate my children, hate my friends. What does this mean? Doesn't Jesus call us to love everyone? Even our enemies? I mean, isn't this the Sermon on the Mount? Love those who persecute you? Doesn't Jesus call us to love even those enemies? How can he tell us to hate our family if we want to follow him? And this is where the idea of hating kind of gets lost in translation a little bit from the cultural context here. Because in Jesus' context, the word hate, the word that's translated hate here, is not an emotional word. It's about allegiance, right? So it's not about allegiance, or it's not about love, but about loyalty. So what Jesus is saying, this isn't the emotion of disdain. I have to treat my family, my friends with disdain, hate them in that sense. No, it's, it's much more about who is my ultimate loyalty to? Who am I ultimately 
where's my primary allegiance? It's about when you're forced to choose, and at various times in our lives, we will be forced to choose. Do I go with X or do I go with Jesus? And no matter what X is, if I'm being forced to choose that and Jesus, I have to be willing to say, I choose Jesus. And you look where Jesus is leading, and you're like, I've, I've got to go with him, even though it makes, means making a difficult choice. Can you afford to follow Jesus? And Jesus names two costs here, our loyalty to others and our loyalty to ourselves. You have to hate to be willing to give up your allegiance to family as well as, he says, even your own life. Give up your allegiance to your own desires. And what's interesting here, too, is notice Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. And notice he doesn't say, I won't let you be my disciple. It's not as though Jesus is saying, well, unless you're willing to put these other things second, I'm just not going to let you follow me. That's not the point. He's saying, it's not that I won't let you do this. It's like you, you cannot do this. You're not able to follow me unless you give me your primary allegiance. I mean, it's like, you know, saying like, I don't, <laughs> uh, you're going swimming. Let's imagine you're going to the pool. And it's like, well, I, I want to swim, but I don't want to get wet. It's like, well, you, you cannot go swimming unless you get wet. It's not like I won't let you go swimming unless you get wet. It's like you cannot do it. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's not a, I won't let you. It's like unless you have this posture towards me, you are not able. You cannot do it. So first, Jesus says, becoming a Christian, becoming a follower of Jesus, becoming a disciple, means that every other loyalty, every other allegiance, every other identity marker gets demoted to second place permanently, forever. Being a disciple, a learner of Jesus, it will cost you your loyalty to others. And the most extreme example that Jesus gives here is family. Jesus is saying that when the time comes, and not if the time comes, but when the time comes, you have to choose between your loyalty to him and your loyalty to those who are the very closest to you. Who is it going to be? Do I follow Jesus or do I follow my spouse? Do I follow Jesus or do I follow my parents? Do I follow Jesus even if it seems like it's at my children's expense? And I know some of you are thinking, well, Jesus would never make me choose. And this is one of those areas where we understand uh, loyalty, though, is this idea of, I, I think we get it, let me just kind of pause for a moment on that question and just go into this illustration that I think can help us understand. Because I think the sense of loyalty kind of maybe seems abstract, but I think we understand it maybe a little bit better in the context of, of our sports teams, right? And let me tell you, I have missed baseball a lot in this season. I had a friend who put it this way, that if you know the Chronicles of Narnia, there's the white witch who makes it always winter but never Christmas. And my friend was saying that it seems like COVID has made it always summer but never baseball. Um, in that uh, kind of feeling, this is, it's 90 degrees and humid, but at least you can you know, turn on a ball game and we don't even have that right now. Now, I grew up in St. Louis, which is a great baseball city, and I was raised as a Cardinals fan, you know, my third generation of Cardinals fans in St. Louis, and I listened to Jack Buck call the Cardinal games on the radio at night as I was falling asleep as a kid. I have great memories of that. To go to my grandma's house was to hear the, the radio on and the Cardinal game on. 
in every room of the house. But when I knew I was going to be staying in Kansas City, when I got hired after the pastoral residency program to be here in Kansas City to start the downtown campus, I knew I needed to change my loyalty. And so I made the choice. I became a Royals fan. Now, my family, talk about allegiance to family, right? My family still gives me a hard time about that. It's mostly in fun, I think. But that's just sports, right? We feel that tension. Like, that was a thing for me to be like, okay, I'm going to root for the Royals because I'm a Kansas Cityan now. How much more with Jesus, right? How much more with Him? Like, when it comes to being generous or saving for your kid's education. Or when it comes to you know, worshiping faithfully, being a part of church community, or the many different activities that can compete with that attention. When it comes to making your spouse happy or looking the other way about that thing in their life. And, and it's not just family, is it? I mean, this is Jesus' example, but it reaches much deeper. Because whoever our people are, and especially in this moment, I think we feel this, right? Whether it's with COVID or around race conversation in our country, that never in, in I think, and certainly in my lifetime, as I felt more into an election year, more polarization and more a sense of us and them, wherever, however you make those distinctions of who the us is and who the them is, but those sense of us and them and my people and those people has never been stronger. I love how Tim Keller explained this. He gave a, a lecture at Princeton Divinity School a few years ago, and he pointed out that the church, the early church, was deeply committed to five things. When you look at this, they were deeply committed to pro-life. To, um, they, you know, in the early Roman Empire, you didn't have abortion in kind of the same way that we do today, but if you had an unwanted child, you would, that child would be born and you would leave it kind of on the rubbish heap just to die. And the early church would, would, was actively rescuing and adopting those children and bringing those. So they had this, this incredible pro-life ethic. They were also deeply committed to multi-ethnic communities. The Jesus movement was about bringing together Jews and non-Jews together in this new multi-ethnic family. So much of the New Testament is written addressing issues that arose as you're trying to bring these two different groups and cultures together in one family. They were also committed to care for the poor and the oppressed, right? This is a big part of what is happening in the Roman Empire is that Christians are sacrificially caring for the poor and the oppressed, and they have a radically countercultural sexual ethic. One kind of critic and observer of Christianity in the early century says they are sort of, they are liberal with their food, but they're stingy with their beds, meaning that they, they have this covenant of marriage that they guard really closely, but they're incredibly generous with their goods. So Keller walks through these things, and then he points out in this lecture at Princeton, he says, now two of those sound a lot like conservative Republican ideals, the countercultural sexual ethic and pro-life. He said two of those tend to sound a bit more sort of progressive democratic ideals, this kind of, we want to have multi-ethnic communities and, and this kind of concern and care for the poor and the press. And he says in one of them, there's a, a fifth thing that sounds like neither. And that is a radical sort of love of enemy. 
that the early church was marked by this incredible deep love for those who persecuted them, who stood against them. I think in this moment, you know, that's what you don't have on any side of the political spectrum right now, is a deep love for those who disagree, for those who are enemies. And the point of all this is that loyalty to Jesus means you're, you're never going to be able to be 100% loyalty, loyal to any political party or ideology, which at one level is really difficult because it makes voting really hard. But at another level, it's really freeing because at the end of the day, like, I don't, we don't answer as a church or as people to any particular political agenda or ideology. We, Jesus is king. That's the ultimate. And people ask, what are your politics? Ultimately, that's what it comes down to. Jesus is king. So have you counted the cost of following him? Verse 28, Jesus says this, For which of you desiring to build a tower, these are the parables, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. And listen, if you count the cost and follow Jesus, your life may actually get harder. It will get harder in lots of ways because he doesn't just want your loyalty to others. He actually wants your loyalty to yourself. And again, following Jesus, becoming a Christian, putting your faith in Jesus, becoming a disciple, those are all the same, or different ways of talking about the same thing. It means that even your loyalty to yourself, your own desires, your own wants, even those things, must ultimately be surrendered. This is another really hard word from Jesus, because for, especially for uh, those of us who live in a culture that says you do you and be true to yourself, that says those, those ideals, you do you, be true to yourself, that that is the way to find freedom and joy and happiness the joy and freedom and happiness that all of us long for, that all of us were designed to experience. And and let's just pause here for a moment because I think sometimes we get the idea in our minds that like this, the sense of freedom and joy and happiness is actually something I shouldn't want. (laughs) But that's not true. Jesus actually came from heaven to earth, became a human being, died and rose again precisely so you could receive joy and life and freedom and happiness and life to the full in him. But he tells us here that the only way to get those things is to come to him. Every other path leads to despair and enslavement and grief. You see, true joy does not come when we find ourselves, but when we lose ourselves and find Jesus. Or as Jesus puts it here in the passage, when we take up our cross, that is when we give up on our own efforts to make ourselves happy and free and instead follow Jesus into the life of joy that he offers us. Now that's scary. That's scary because you can't do it halfway. And that's the point with Jesus' really strong language here. You can't have one foot doing your own thing and the other one sort of dipped in Jesus' way. That's going to pull you apart. You're going to eventually be forced to choose between one or the other. The only way to experience the true joy, the true freedom that Jesus offers is to lean fully on him, to side fully with him, to give your allegiance fully to him. 
I mean, think of it like this. I love browsing at REI, and you, you all know, many of you know, I love camping, hiking, national parks. Yesterday I was on the patio in the heat, but just working on my trip plans for August. Hopefully it's all going to work out. I could spend hours looking at camping gear in REI. And while I, um, you know, I can't afford most of the stuff there, I love, I love looking at it. And I would love, and Rachel will tell you this, my wife, she would tell you, I would love to own all the gear next, necessary to climb Mount Everest. I'm never going to do that, uh, but I would, love to have, I would love to look like I could do that. I would love to have the, the, uh, the clothing to do that. Um, I'd love to dress like it. Or, you know, it's one thing to stare at a rope and a harness in REI and think, I bet that harness and those ropes could hold me up. It's another thing to put that harness on, to attach yourself to that rope, and lean backward over a 100-foot cliff, uh, which I did quite a bit in scouting. And many of you may know, too, I'm a bit afraid of heights. Somehow, if I've got a rope attached to me, that helps me. Um, but when you do that, that's the moment. When you lean backward over that and your weight hits that rope for the first time, that's when you know that's when you're putting your trust in that rope. And Jesus is saying, don't go buy all the gear unless you're ready to climb. Don't say you trust the rope unless you're willing to lean back and do it. So ask yourself, when my desires, my preferences, my comfort conflict with Jesus, who wins? Who wins? And then one last question here. And that is, can you afford not to follow Jesus? Because yes, the cost of following Jesus is high. And Jesus, he's never going to deceive you about that. He's very open. He wants you to see the cost and count it. That's the point of these parables. But we often miss that the cost of not following Jesus is even higher and I think this is what Jesus is getting at in that second short parable that he tells here. This is verse 31. He says, Or what king going out to war to encounter another king will not sit down first and deliberate whether or not he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if he is not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And I think the main point of this parable that Jesus tells here is the same one as the tower. Don't build a tower you can't finish. Don't go to war if you can't win, if you're completely outmatched. It's the same idea. And yet scholars have also wondered if Jesus is adding a little bit of a nuance to the second parable here because Jesus is a king and you and I are very outmatched. You will not defeat him. And he has come to war against your shame and your regret, to war against all that is evil and broken in the world, and to war against our loyalties that would lead us astray. A battle is coming. Jesus will defeat evil, but there is an offer of peace on the table. And Jesus isn't being Pollyanna here. The costs of surrender are high, but the cost of defeat is even higher. And maybe this is making too much of this little parable, but I think the truth is the same. Following Jesus will cost you, and not following him will cost you so much more. And you'll end up fighting a war you cannot win with a God who loves you and longs for your surrender, an unconditional surrender, but who welcomes you in, not as slaves, but, or even as subjects, but as sons and daughters. He stands with his arms open, ready to receive you. He wants you 
I think in this way, it's a little bit like marriage, uh, at, at least for me, and I know marriage is a really mixed bag for so many, but I happened, and you know, I happen to be married to an incredible, incredible woman. And marriage is costly. I stood on this platform yesterday and did a wedding, and I, I looked at the couple and said, marriage is going to cost, it costs you a lot. Every time I do a wedding, I tell the couple, I, I did this, I was standing right, right here, I was right on this little coffee stain yesterday as the couple was there in a socially distanced wedding. And I said, either you will kill your selfishness or your selfishness will kill your marriage. Either you will kill your selfishness or your selfishness will kill your marriage. The moment I was married, right, I no longer got to spend my money and my time and my life exactly how I wanted. The cost of marriage is real. One you must count if you are considering marriage, but the cost I would gladly pay because instead of those things, I get someone who, who knows me better than I know myself, who still loves me even though they know me better than they, I know myself. In intimacy and companionship and joy, how much more than for the God who made you, who died for you, who victoriously rose for you, who gives you his spirit, who's able to help you to live this out in the forgiveness when you fail and hope that one day all things will be made new. That's a cost worth paying. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that each one of us what a fresh, it's a daily thing to count this cost. There is one sense, yes, Lord, in which we make a decision that we hand our lives to you, that we follow you, and there's a decisive moment. And there is another sense in which every morning when we wake up, we have a choice. This day will I follow Jesus? Will I give him my primary loyalty? And I know there are days when, for me, I, I do that, and there are other days when I can pass through in the whole day and I don't give much thought. Help us to choose you because with you there's life and joy and happiness, what we really long for. Amen.